Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, hey, hello, and welcome to the Feminist Book Club podcast, the show that brings you the best of the best feminist content. I'm your host, Neba from Notes by Neba, and today we are going to talk about rearranging marriage, a really clever kind of uh, title of on arranging marriage by uh, the author I have here herself for a chat. Mansi, why don't you go ahead and say hi to our listeners? Hi, uh, my name is Mansi Choksi, and I am the author of a new book called The Newlyweds. It's a book that follows the journeys of three young couples from different corners of India that each illustrates a, a big theme about um, modern India at the moment. So we have one couple from the north that is from different socioeconomic castes. There is a same-sex couple from a southern state, and there's a Hindu and Muslim couple that finds itself at um, the center of a political conspiracy known as Love Jihad. Amazing. So we have tons of different stories all being woven together. I will also add a trigger warning for both this episode and for the book that these con- these may contain sexual violence, sexual content, mental illness, and uh, references to homophobia. So coming back to this book, which I read just very recently, oh my gosh, I have to say as a person who's like Indian descent, you know, born in America, kind of reading about what's going on in India, I simultaneously just sort of like felt my privilege as a person living in America who doesn't have to worry about a good chunk of these and at the same time was so worried about all these people back there and at the same time listeners when this was recorded uh, the Roe v. Wade issue in America just got um, signed into legalization so now we all have access to basic freaking human rights which I guess we should be happy about but really it seems like the bare minimum so it's hard to feel happy about it so reading this book was quite like so just sort of an eye-opener so Muncie just to give our listeners kind of a a look into what arranged marriage and marriage culture is like in India and in South Asia can you tell our listeners a little bit about that yeah so I, I say in my introduction that marriage often in Indian culture is Um, sometimes thought about as the only intended outcome of growing up. Marriage is usually um, an arrangement between two people that belong to the same caste, class, religion, region, language, sub-community, clan. And these are very sort of uh, protected. um, uh, This arrangement is fiercely protected because it's also the way power hierarchies function in India. A a groom and a bride from uh, rival castes or religions or languages can can often threaten to destabilize a um, a power balance in um, Indian society. It's it's highly taboo. And for our listeners who don't know about like the the caste system, I'd love to touch on that and kind of what the caste system is now and what it used to look like before the the British rule. Yeah. So the caste system, uh, it's a millennia old practice, which fragments Hindu society into 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 strata based on occupation. And it's a hierarchical sort of arrangement. It looks like a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid are a handful of people that have that are born into a particular caste and have, you know, centralized power um, over other other castes um, that are, you know, uh, that are determined by occupation. So there's a caste that, you know, is 
uh, traditionally expected to um, do sanitary work. There's a caste that's um, a warrior caste and so on. And um, even though a lot of these occupations now have no place in modern society, this is still a big identifying marker for uh, most Indian people. Um, uh, especially the uh, the the idea of the gotra, which is um, which which basically means that two people's ancestor can be traced back to the same person. Um, they could be from different different castes, but they are the part of the same clan or gotra. And even those marriages are considered incest and therefore taboo. So the one of the couples that I write about in this book, Manoj and Bobli, uh, their um, their marriage was considered taboo because they uh, were said to belong to the same gotra and uh, the consequences for them were, were were fatal they were kidnapped and murdered by family members who wanted to avenge the dishonor uh, from them running away yeah and it's wild because you know in other countries sometimes the option is there to you know reach out to the police or to the government for help versus in you know this culture it's almost like accepted it's sort of like part of uh your honor it's sort of part of what you're allowed to do which is um really bizarre because then you're sort of left without any options or anywhere to go to one of the groups that you mentioned in this in this book is called the love commandos which i thought was a really interesting concept it's the idea of this sort of grassroots movement of a group that believes in love and decides that they'll take their funds and help young couples that are trying to run away and so even though the concept was really great, how it plays out in the book is uh, quite, quite interesting. Muncie, I'm curious, are there a lot of these groups in India? Like how, when you were doing your research, how did you go about finding all of this? Yeah, there are actually a handful of um, such groups that protect that, that claim to protect uh, young lovers that find themselves in vulnerable positions. But um, Love Commandos is actually one of the most well-known ones. Back in 2012, uh, they were featured on a show called Satya Mev Jayate, which is, I want to say, the equivalent of um, of uh, Oprah, uh, yeah, like the Oprah Winfrey show. And uh, it, it, it was it's widely popular and, um, you know, watched by various sections of society. And and they were featured as these do-gooders that would uh, provide refuge and protection to young lovers that wanted to marry for love, who were at risk of at risk of like being hunted by their families or um, community leaders who were against their marriages. And I that's how I actually heard about them. And I thought that I would. Um, you know, kind of like spend some time with them and try to do a, you know, essentially just um, write a, a sort of feature story on um, these middle-aged men that I thought were doing fantastic work. So that's the mindset I went in with. But as I um, hung out and spent more time at the shelter, I realized that the the truth was something else. They, uh, you know, these, these, these were men that were, um, Praying on young couples. I met, I met, I met several, several, several young couples that had um, chosen to take shelter with the love commandos. And uh, you know, the way things played out as I spent time uh, made me worry about uh, what if uh, their intentions and whether um, they really did mean to uh, protect these people. Because it, what I ended up witnessing was that um, they were using these young couples to essentially raise uh, money for themselves. Yeah, so that's that. Maybe this is a spoiler. <laughs> a little bit of a spoiler, but that's okay. Yeah. Hopefully, everyone who's reading this uh, is aware that sometimes this happens. But yeah. um, you know, that's a really great point. That like 
you know, when you have people who are desperate for, you know, some kind of basic need being met, whether that's like food, shelter, just being able to be with the people you love, um, you also have people who are willing to exploit that, right? And so, um, you know, when these people don't have their family to turn to their friend, turning to their friends, put their friends at risk, turning to the police and government is also not an option. You know, Mm -hmm. it means that they're going to become really, really desperate. Right. And so uh, I'm curious how you kind of just sort of like backing up a little bit, how you got into this concept of love marriages and uh, arranged marriages in India, because your your background is is an investigative journalist, right? Yeah, I actually this um this book began um as a magazine story for Harper's magazine. I did a magazine length piece about the Love Commandos where I actually met Neetu and Dorinda for the first time. And then I went back um to do some more reporting for the piece. And as I was writing and as I, actually as I was at the Love Commando shelter and as I was spending time there, um it occurred to me that I was interested in um writing a book about about you know just you know where it's a really strange place in Indian history where the first generation of people that has had has had access to you know the the, the economy liberalizing to you know um, various forms of technology changing the way that we perceive ourselves perceive the world you know growing up in India you you um, I, I had that sense that I was in in a part of the world that was rising. And I had these like big ambitions for what we were going to achieve. Oh, I think all young people in India who uh, who were born in that age, post-liberalization, had that feeling of optimism. Uh, but in our private lives, um, we have, you know, a very traditional way of life. Even in the big cities, um, across uh, class, caste, everything, um, um, there is an expectation around marriage. This would be a good entry point to investigate larger issues that are are important in India at the moment. Um, especially as someone who consumes uh, Indian and Desi pop culture, like um, love stories are a huge part of the national narrative, right? In in India, yeah. Bollywood is is in a way a national narrative. Like Hindi soaps are, uh, you know, like have this central theme of like forbidden love. And as someone who has like grown up watching and continues to watch them, I thought it was a really great way to to take this idea of um, a love story, just because. Wherever I went while I was reporting various kinds of stories, young people only wanted to talk about who they were in love with or, you know, what, you know, where their private lives were headed. And I, thought, <laughs> and, and I was also very excited. I mean, I, I also enjoyed those conversations. So I wanted to kind of combine this idea of um, love stories from like the pop, pop culture, like we consume it, but then also dwell in the afterlife of those love stories. Like um, I, I've, my hope for this book is that, um, you know, um, is is to kind of investigate what happens when uh, we fight for g- big grand love like that's what we that's what we read in books and uh, movies and uh, soaps and then and but, but but what I want this book to to do is to hang to like to spend time in in the part where this grand love is sort of reassigned into the smallness of daily life um you know in the mundanity in the hum of um, everyday life that's not as exciting as eloping and you know like fighting people and having um you know like um uh, the Bollywood the, classic story of like exactly yeah something super yeah. intense and like yeah I always find it really funny when people like just don't understand the the dramatization of love in India like every right. single freaking movie is so so dramatic about it and then it, like, exactly. you know, it affects everyone's perceptions about it and the way they talk about it and their declarations of love to each other and 
Absolutely. And that's something that I saw in all of these couples. Like when I first met Neetu, the reason there, there were six couples at the Love Commando Shelter, but I was so drawn to Neetu um, essentially because she kind of like described herself as the the uh, the, the heroine in uh, a, a film epic that nobody was watching but herself. You know, <laughs> like one of the first things she said to me was, uh, it was so loud, you know, when we when we ran away, we were just like um, uh, Bollywood, uh, like she she she, she named Shahid Kapoor and uh, Kareena Kapoor from Jab We Met, except we didn't have nice costumes. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was just so fantastic because it really sums up the way that we we talk about our own stories in India. And um, th- that's the reason I wanted to use this as an entry point, as a very accessible entry point to discuss difficult topics. So I wanted to use this love story as a vehicle to talk about um, things that we need to talk about, which is India's lurch to the right, which is, um, you know, like our internalized history of homophobia, you know, kind of like and how we can dismantle it and kind of like find our own origins of, um, you know, whether there was tolerance of, you know, sexuality uh, in ancient India or whatever. Like we, uh, I, we stopped asking those questions. And yeah, and I, and, I, and I just thought that it was a nice way to get people who would not usually read a, a book about, um, you know, like such intense, heavy topics um, to find <laughs> and uh, think about these issues. Yeah, certainly. I will say also, like, readers, uh, when you read this book, even though all these topics are heavy, by, like, she, Muncie does such an amazing job of, like, interweaving the the laws and the news of what's happening at that time with the stories that are going on. So it reads, like, almost like a, like a part novel epic about these, like, three lovers and uh, these three couples and part, like, a almost, uh, I don't know, like a, like an investigative journalism piece where you're learning a lot about this culture and, you know, uh, for readers who are perhaps like in other cultures, perhaps you feel like more or less privileged, like seeing all of these stories and seeing what kind of things these people are going through. You know, things like uh, like The Notebook is always hailed as this like big Hollywood romantic film. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, this is nothing compared to Bollywood <laughs> films. And um, we see that like repeatedly, even in the way that like these couples talk to each other or the way they interact because they've been you know repressed so much and they're not allowed to date they're not allowed to you know pursue who they want they're not allowed to talk about mental illness or they're not allowed to kind of have difficult emotional conversations we see that come out in all kinds of ways with the way that they interact with their partner the way that they treat themselves and um you're left with kind of this sense of like you know if if only people would be more willing to be more vulnerable and accepting of others this whole narrative would be very very different yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So as we as we wrap up here, is there anything else that you want to mention before we get into two last very important questions for our podcast? <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think um, the thing that I hope is that people sort of um, read this book and come away thinking about how love can take different shapes and colors and forms and how um, fighting for love is one thing. But um, after you attain it, what it does to you is another. And I, um, and that's one thing. That's like one general thing. But I also want people to think about, you know, these like heteronormative ideas of uh, marriages and, and love that are so deeply rooted in Indian society and, and societies everywhere, actually. These, these roles that are assigned to us by, um, by the bodies that we're born into. And I, and especially in the story of the same-sex couple, um, that's Reshma and Preeti. Um, I thought, you know, I feel like that their story has been um, a real, um, you know, learning experience for me 
as well to kind of how to think about love because um the way that they express their love uh, to each other is 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 like we said earlier is it's is borrowed from um pop culture and and also these ideas of how you should be in a marriage are borrowed from pop culture or from like uh, the examples that they see in their own lives and it's a, it's a very sort of uh, i thought uh, interesting um trajectory that their story takes and you know forms and falls apart which teaches uh, which taught me um um and gave me a, a lot to think about um and i hope it makes people think about it too <laughs> <laughs> certainly actually you know that perfectly segues into um our next question of uh our question is we love to ask this of all of the people who come on our feminist book club podcast is um how do you define uh feminism yeah um wow that's really heavy um <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love um, love to spring I, this on you right at the end <laughs> yeah 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 um i think um for me feminism is is a way to create an um equal infrastructure of opportunity for everybody um just um is like a struggle towards creating a system where everyone regardless of obviously not just gender but um you know like every intersectional force possible class um caste everything um how 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 to create a place that um there is an equal delivery of opportunity for everyone yeah uh i love that i love that answer yeah. um and then our very last question is going to be any books that you recommend for our readers they don't necessarily need to be related to newlyweds but um yeah. they they can be just anything you'd recommend Yeah of course i mean my all time favorite book that i like when when there are days when i am just struggling and i i want to shock myself out of my dead skin um is uh Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forever it's just i think the most fantastic piece of um reportage that has come out of india bombay is the place i grew up so just when when i read this book it blew my mind and it just i i think it changed my ideas of what I I I thought was possible um with these journalistic tools that completely changed my world view. I also love um Akhil Sharma's um A Life of Adventure and Delight. I think I I just love those short stories um the way that he is able to capture um the essence of um, ordinary life in small town India is just fantastic. And then um I'm currently reading um Bohini Vora uh, Bohini Vara's um The Immortal King Rao. Um I'm loving it so far. um and other favorite books uh yeah i i mean these are um on top of my mind awesome readers and listeners these will all be in our show notes um uh, both on our website and also in the description uh thank you so much for for being thank on the you. podcast monsie this has been so much fun and uh last certainly but not least thank you to our listeners if you guys have a topic you'd like to discuss or question you have for me or for feminist book club my dms are open you can find me on pretty much any platform youtube insta twitter tiktok at notes by niba and you can find feminist book club on pretty much every single platform now as well youtube insta twitter tiktok also on our website and uh that's all for now i'll see you guys on the next page I'd like to invite you to join the National Women's Studies Association this November 10th through the 13th at the Hilton Minneapolis for the annual conference. The 2022 NWSA conference theme Killing Rage Resistance on the Other Side of Freedom seeks to open up conversations about freedom and justice, salvation and sacrifice, convenience and controversy, and whose life and vote matters. 
At our conference, you can connect with other activists, feminists, and scholars from across the globe. This year, the keynote speakers are feminist leaders Angela Davis and Anita Hill and many more. Don't know what NWSA is? The NWSA is the world's largest group of feminists, activists, and scholars dedicated to advancing women and women's studies across the globe. So are you a feminist? Join NWSA at nwsa.org to become a member and to see more details on this year's conference. Again, that's nwsa.org or follow them on Twitter at NWSA or on Instagram at NWSA underscore IG. We hope to see you this November here in Minneapolis. Hello, hello, and welcome to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. I'm Ra. And I'm Jordy. And today we're having a short discussion about the American flag. <laughs> uh, with Patriot Day underway and our current political and social climate, sometimes it's hard to wonder what does the American flag mean to you and what does it mean to be an American? And today that's what we're bringing a short discussion about, the American flag. Yeah, I guess I just already said that. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. Um, so yeah, so thanks for having this discussion with me, Jordy. Yeah, thanks for having me on for it. Heck yeah. So for those of y'all who have not heard Jordy on our podcast before, she's one of our content contributors, and she's uh, also an ex-Coast Guard um yeah, Coast Guardian. Yeah, Coast better. Guardian. You're ex-Coast Guardian <laughs> and no longer a Coast Guardian. So we just thought it would be interesting to hear her point of view and just the point of view of a delinquent, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Jordy, um, I want to know as a kid, I know that we mm-hmm. kind of talked about it. What did the flag mean to you? Um, as a kid, the flag was pretty much everything to me. I grew up in a very conservative, patriotic family. And like right next to like going to church was, you know, like 4th of July and stuff like that. And so from a young age, I was very pro-America, like everything's good, nothing's bad. And because of all of that, growing up like in middle school around that time, I was starting to think about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And we took this field trip to Washington, DC. And I remember going to the Pentagon and being like, I'm gonna end up here one day. I'm like, this is all I wanna do. And so I went home after that eighth grade field trip, researched a whole bunch of schools, found out these things called service academies. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, you basically go to these academies, you have army and Navy, Coast Guard, Air Force, and this thing called the Merchant Marine Academy, which is where I ended up going. But initially, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And from eighth grade to senior year of high school, my entire existence revolved around doing whatever it took to get into one of these academies. And yeah, it was pretty intense. That sounds intense. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I have to ask real quick, were your, Mm. your family one of the families that like would shop at Old Navy and all of y'all had the matching American flag shirts? <laughs> so we didn't go that far, but we definitely, definitely had like patriotic stuff everywhere. And yeah, it was, it was a lot, but we didn't okay. have matching t-shirts. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's a sad time because matching t-shirts are always fun, but uh, it's good yeah. to know. I just, I just needed to know the family preface real quick. Uh, continue. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, 
So senior year, I ended up getting a message from one of the volleyball coaches at the Merchant Marine Academy saying, you know, I saw you were interested in playing some other places, check us out. And I remember being like, what the heck is the Merchant Marine? And like, why would I want to go there? But my dad actually grew up in Staten Island and he had heard of this school, which is um, right outside Queens. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh, no, it's pretty good. Like, let's just go to a luncheon, see what they have to say. Worst case scenario, we get a free lunch. And I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Okay, let's do it. And when I was there, I remember the alumni talking about all of their experiences. What really sold me was you got to travel the world as part of your education. And then when you got out, you were guaranteed a job. I was like, Mm, okay, yeah, sign me up. Yeah. Um, And I did. I loved my college. I loved the Merchant Marine Academy. I loved the experiences that I had there and the friends that I made there. But then I had to figure out what I wanted to do, you know, post-graduation. And our obligation from the Merchant Marine Academy was either to go active duty or to sail commercially on, like, container ships, tankers, stuff like that. Okay. And so that's how I ended up in the Coast Guard, because the place that I wanted to work at had overhired the position that I would have been filling. And so they weren't hiring. So I was like, okay, I don't want to be without a job. So active duty it is for me. And it was between the Navy and the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard gave me more of a family oriented, you know, good feeling, close knit type of group. And I was like, oh, this is going to be perfect. And so that's my how did I get into the military kind of Mm-hmm. And just mm-hmm. how it how the flag shape your life, basically, oh, yes. from a child into your through your adolescence into your adulthood, essentially. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it just stayed a pretty standard. Oh, yeah. Unwavering. Man. Just yeah, like I used to get upset, like if people, you know, weren't um, like before volleyball games or whatever, like if people didn't have their hand over their heart or just stuff like that. I just remember oh, being man. like super pissed about. Yeah, it was a lot. You would, you would have hated me. Um, <laughs> so I was one of those kids in high school. I I don't I don't know wh- why. Like I don't think I was trying to make a big statement, but mm-hmm. I think it was just like seven forty five in the morning, and I did not want to stand up to say the American flag, like the Pledge of Allegiance um, to the American flag. And so I would just mm-hmm. sit and I would not say it. I would just like lay my head down and. No one made me do anything about it. They're just like, nope, that's just that's just what they want to do. And yeah. I continued doing it. And eventually the whole class stopped doing it. Oh, um, wow. So I don't know if I planted any other seeds or just people were just tired and just didn't want to stand up at 745 in the morning because it's way too early to go to school at that time. Oh, um, yeah. So yeah, you probably would have been upset with me in the class. I, yeah, definitely younger me would have been like, what the heck is going on here? Yeah, like, yeah. But it's funny you say that because I teach now and the school that I'm at, um, there's just like a lot going on. And for the Pledge of Allegiance, like they would bribe some kids like with like these tokens or whatever, if they would stand up and do the pledge. And so like that just reminded me of it. Oh, wait, they're act- story. Like, actively bribing kids today. Um, So the school that I work at is like different from normal schools. Like they're there for like behavioral reasons mm. or like they just need extra help. And so part of like trying to get them to listen or kind of have structure or routine in our day, they would hand out like tokens like, oh, like if you stand up and do the pledge or like if you do what you're supposed to and like the more of these like tickets or tokens that you get, like you can turn them in for rewards. 
Oh, okay. So it wasn't I mean, like bribing. I don't want to say bribing. But yeah, it's an incentive. more about like creating structure and mm-hmm. um, going almost like going through motions. Yeah, uh, not yeah. so much, not like the brainwashy feel, but more like, hey, let's try to like do something, you know. I wonder like what would happen if y'all just like changed it to like we're singing a weird song every morning. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, that's completely yeah, that's totally sidetracked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's totally sidetracked. As as you're telling your story of like going into the military, um, it completely reminded me of being in middle school and having interest in joining uh, only because I had a military officer put on my job at aptitude 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 I can't remember oh, the, the word aptitude for that. test aptitude that's the word <laughs> um, my job aptitude test told me I should be a military officer and I was like mm, maybe we'll see um but that never that never transpired because I just never stood up for the flag anyways <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know I guess like American like the American family that you're kind of talking about is feels so I don't I, I don't know how to put this it's- it's, it's like it's I so like the typical like it's very typical it yeah. is and I know that I didn't grow up in a typical home just because my father is Puerto Rican and mm-hmm. so like my father like instilled it in me that you know you should be proud of where you come from so I grew up with like seeing Puerto Rican flags just all over the place um like it was on my dad's car I, he had it on t-shirts I had it on t-shirts um mm-hmm. And I, I think that really kind of got confuddled in my brain of trying to figure out like, oh, well, like, am I Puerto Rican? Am I American? I don't really understand that, which that even transpired to a point like I was in a fourth grade choir in at the school called Freedom Elementary, and it's in Keller ISD. And if you don't know where Keller ISD is, Keller ISD is the town and the school district um, or the school district in Keller that has banned the most books in America. That's where I went to elementary school. But I remember sitting in this choir class and the teacher being upset that no one was singing with gusto because we were singing proud to be an American. And so my like fourth grade ass just raises my hand and I'm like, hey, what if I'm not American? And then she's like, well, if you're not American, what are you? And I said, I'm Mexican. No one has let me lip that down. And um, yeah, and I feel like that was kind of my descent into the, I don't know if the American flag is for me, but I really want to take it back and make it mine. (laughs) (laughs) And then it just turned into a huge joke of like, hey, all the queer people, we should take it back because the people that kind of seem like they love the American flag (laughs) feel like they're people that... that I don't know. The way that I see the people that love American flags feel like they're people that wouldn't like me. Like they don't like queers. They don't like non-binary people or like people of color. So it's just like, oh, I wanted to take it back and I wanted to make it mine and display it like how I displayed all my Puerto Rican flags when I was younger. But it just doesn't feel like I can do that anymore, you know? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I definitely I definitely know what you're saying, because I feel like when you think of somebody who is like flying the American flag from the back of their truck or something or is just obsessed or whatnot, you definitely have like a stereotypical image or perception of what that person is. And I found that it goes like one of two ways. Like they either kind of fit the mold that you think they are, or it's like they just like don't know enough because like I reflect back on like my younger self. And it's like, I had only ever known one way just because like 
how I grew up or like where I grew up, went to school, stuff like that. And it wasn't until like I actually got out and like into different things, like even after college, it took me till after college to realize a bunch of things. And so it's like, sometimes I look and I'm like, okay, people still like just need to actually like remove the rug from over their eyes or whatever and just like learn more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> um so I know that you said that you kind of had a whole 180 on your attitude. What's yes. up with that? What happened? Yes. So after joining the military, one of the reasons why I joined the Coast Guard was because I heard that it was one of the more progressive branches which I can attest to. It's definitely I think if you're wanting to go into the military I think the Coast Guard is still the best, but I would definitely highly recommend maybe searching elsewhere for career opportunities. Mm -hmm. But the second biggest reason was because I heard that the way that the Coast Guard treats their female personnel was much better than any other branch. And so I thought, oh, okay, that must mean like I'm safer. Like I'm safer in this environment because at least it's not this other branch where you hear horror stories or something. Right. However, that was unfortunately not the case. At my first unit, one of the officers there who was like basically in charge of our unit um, or one of them in charge, mm -hmm. he had a history of sexually harassing women and it was just like so bad. And so I definitely experienced that with him. And when we would try to either report it or say something to our command we were met with like he's leaving soon or like it's not essentially it's not that big of a deal mm -hmm. or stuff like that and like I could give stories for hours on that but then I also experienced sexual assault in the military and after that it was just like my complete idea of what the American flag should be just shifted I was like this isn't what I thought it was like, this isn't like the military that I thought we were. This isn't the country I thought we were like, it's just crazy and terrible. So I, like, and then like, I started just realizing everything from there when it came to like how the government just in general or America just in general, like treats people who are different and whatever different means to you. And I was just like, all of these things that I grew up with and thinking that were true, like none of it makes sense anymore. And I was like, why did I like think these things previously? Or why did I believe these things? Because now like I know that like it wasn't either the right way to think or the right way to like treat people or just like the stuff to believe in. And so that's really where my shift came from. Mm. Um, were you able to report your sexual assault? So I was very hesitant because at first I didn't even consider it sexual assault. I was just like, oh, like I wanted this. And the person who had done it, he like outranked me. And I was like, oh, like I thought, like I thought like I was safe. I thought this was okay. But like even replaying the scenario in my head, I was like, oh no, like I definitely didn't want this. And like I, what happened is like I got out and I like went to somebody I was like, hey, please help me. Like, I think this is going to happen. I think this is going to be bad. Like, don't mm -hmm. leave me. And unfortunately, the person outranked who I was also talking with and he ended up leaving me. So I was stuck with this person. 
Mm -hmm. And I remember telling one of my friends about it the next day and she was like, no, like that is sexual assault. That's what this is. And I was kind of like, I don't know what to do because one, I was like stuck with this person on a boat after the incident for like another month. And I was like, well, they didn't believe us when we reported the sexual harassment and they didn't do anything then. And kind of just like the whole air of like how people treat sexual harassment, sexual assault is kind of like a joke, honestly, I felt in the military. And then I was just like, oh, like if I say something, like, are they going to investigate it all? Like, are they going to believe me? You know, I just thought it was going to be absolutely terrible. Yeah. And it took me three years to finally report it. And I reported it last year. And what's kind of cool is, I don't know if it's in other places or with other branches, but in the Coast Guard, we have this service where you can report it and it can be like, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to go to a full investigation. So what I ended up doing was reporting him and making a report on the system mm-hmm. that we have and like listing who it was, where it happened, what had happened so that if somebody else reports something similar or that happened with the same person, then like it'll get flagged and I'll get notified saying, hey, somebody else reported this person or this type of incident. Like, do you want to come forward? Because then, you know, there's like two of you. And so right now I'm still like in that stage and maybe it'll change in the future if I want to create a full investigation, but that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine in that moment, it just really felt like the American military, American government has failed you completely if you felt like you couldn't go to anybody after that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like what's sad is I don't know any female in the military. Granted, like I was only in five years, which is still a pretty significant amount of time Mm -hmm. um but of of the females that like i interact with interacted with enough to have a conversation about this there isn't one person that i know that hasn't experienced like some form of harassment or assault and people wonder why enlistment's low yeah and it's like they wonder why they can't retain females they wonder why people want to get out and it's like Mm -hmm. because there's a huge issue you know, like I have, I have a brother that was in the army and he went in, he did his service and he has not talked to me about any of it. And I'm very curious because he got out real fast mm-hmm. and just is done with it. And I'm just like, oh, I want to know what happened, but he won't talk to me. So that's mm-hmm. a different story though. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that happened. Um, and I hope that there's something that comes out of it. If you decide to have a full investigation. Mm-hmm. I still I get conflicted feelings when I look at the flag because I look at the flag and I remember all of the things that I was hopeful of and like the good things that I thought of and believed in. And on the flip side, it's like, oh, like it feels like everything was fake. Like it feels like I believed in this lie, but at the same time, it's like I still believe like America is great and I still believe that like we can do great things and it's just it's just hard because it's like oh but i also like if you think of everything else that's going on it's like hard to keep up the hope sometimes Mm -hmm. it reminds me like what you're talking about makes me think of uh we do this till we free us by mariam kaba uh, and the whole essay about hope being a discipline and the fact that you have to tell yourself that you need to practice hope in order to be hopeful for things and for change and for a better future, 
So um, yeah, that's just what I really think of. Mm -hmm. What now? What about the flag now? Do we just continue to have hope and hope that our the, the trajectory of America changes and that we can want to take it back and f- display it again and have it, have the country change our mind? I think so. I'm I'm very hopeful and yeah, I want to I want to see America do great things and just be better yeah. because yeah, like I'm happy to be here and for the most part I love it. And so I just want it I want America to meet my expectations. <laughs> I want people to look at the flag and not see all the letdowns. That's perfect. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, like if we can get rid of all the letdowns, I think it would be a shinier, shinier thing for people to look at and maybe not give such sour faces if they see it on an Old Navy t-shirt. Exactly. And I think what's hard with that is, you know, we want to look at it and not see all the letdowns. But it's like, how do we reconcile that? Like, how do we like move on from the letdowns in a way where like we don't look at the flag as a constant reminder of all of those things? I think that's something that takes a lot of learning and unlearning. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think we could probably wrap this up here. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. Well, thanks, friends, uh, for joining us in this discussion about the American flag. If you have some flag thoughts that you want to share, please hop into our DMs. Um, And yeah, thanks, Jordy, for being here. Yeah, thank (laughs) you. Sharing your story. Yeah. Yeah, had fun. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a dangerous creature.